this is the last section of Old Testament history. So this is the final chapter. I'll read Ezra chapter 1 as a representative section, and then we'll be looking at various texts throughout the, uh, the Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, these two books. Give careful attention to God's Word. In the first year of Cyrus of Persia, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were with, all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shesh-Bazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's just imagine for a moment that you are the ruler of a superpower. And your job is to conquer smaller nations. And uh, you've conquered a number of smaller nations, as well as some large ones, and you face a problem. And the problem is this. You encounter a people that has a very, very strong identity. And that people also has a very, very strong faith. And you're trying to figure out how to overcome this people. Now, you're able to militarily... But how do you deal with a people with such a, a strong identity and such a strong faith? Well, some of the options might be these. You could try to dilute their faith by dispersing them geographically and encouraging them to intermingle with other people. You might be able to dilute the strength of their identity and their faith. Or, perhaps you want to keep them together, but you keep them together under your thumb. You exile them to where you are, close to your capital city, so you can keep an eye out. You let them practice their faith, you let them have their identity, but you keep a real close eye on them because you have them under your thumb. That might be an option. Or... 
perhaps, you want to leave them in their land. It's a lot of trouble to exile and uh, take a whole people to a new place. So you decide to leave them in their land, to give them freedom of religion, but watch over them very, very carefully so they don't become rebellious. Well, those options are, respectively, the options of the superpower Assyria, who dispersed conquered people and tried to intermingle them and make them all mestizos and dilute their identity and dilute their faith. And then the next superpower was Babylon, Babylonia, and their policy was to exile the people to Babylon so that they could keep an eye on them, but allow them to continue to practice their faith. And then the third superpower, which conquered Babylon, was Persia. And Persia had a more apparently magnanimous policy, and that was to encourage people to practice their own identities in their own places, but keeping governors over them so they didn't get any ideas to become rebellious. Now, the Persian idea was kind of to cover all the bases. That is to say, all of the people, they should practice their religions and pray for the king of Persia just in case. So that's what he did. He tried to recruit all the gods of all the peoples so that they would all be praying for him. Now, what God did with these various policies of these different superpowers, we have already seen two of them. We have seen that God used Assyria to disperse the ten tribes of Israel and intermingle them with other peoples, although a faithful remnant of those ten tribes stayed with Judah in the southern kingdom. That's what we saw last week. And then God used Babylonia to keep Judah intact, those two tribes, with remnants from the other ten tribes, but he carried many of them to exile in Babylonia for 70 years. Now, Persia sacks Babylonia and takes over, and Persia's Uh, Persia's policy is to repatriate people and to encourage them. And that's what we find here. That's what we find that God used the king of Persia, King Cyrus, to get the people back into the land of Judah. Now, there's something remarkable remarkable about this. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 44, the end of Isaiah chapter 44, and Isaiah chapter 45, God mentions the Persians. And not only does He mention the Persians, He mentions Cyrus by name. Uh, chapter Isaiah 44, 28, in, in the Bibles that are available to you, page 675. And it says, Of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be, re- be rebuilt, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So it says that Cyrus will rebuild Jerusalem. Amazing, right? The amazing thing about this is this is 150 years before Cyrus existed. 150 years before Cyrus existed, he is mentioned... Not only in general, he is mentioned by name as the one whom God would use to rebuild Jerusalem. And that's exactly what we find here in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, this restoration, this restoration of Jerusalem took place in at least three phases under three men with a certain focus in each case. Uh, First of all, there was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel became the governor. Uh, and he was a descendant of David. Do you remember we saw at the end of last week that that glint of hope that God's promise to David would continue? 
as uh, as the king of uh, uh, the king of uh, Babylonia raised him up, uh, the 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 the, the uh, king of Judah, and and allowed him to sit at his table. So there was a ray of hope that the line of David would continue. Here it is, Zerubbabel the governor. So Zerubbabel under Zerubbabel they rebuilt the temple. This is Ezra's chapter Ezra chapter one to six. Then we have uh, the rebuilding of the people. And that's uh, under the direction of Ezra, who was a scribe. The book's named after him. He was a scribe. He was a priest. He was a teacher of the law. So we have Zerubbabel the governor rebuilding the temple, Ezra chapter 1 to 6. Then we have Ezra the scribe rebuilding the people's identity according to the law. That's Ezra chapter 7 to 12. And then we have the final rebuilding, and that's the rebuilding of the walls in the city of Jerusalem, and that's under Nehemiah, who also became governor, and that's the whole book of Nehemiah. So three phases, and we're going to look at those phases briefly today. We find that, remarkably, after this edict of the king of Persia, that anyone who wanted to could go back, 42,000 Jews decided to go back. Now that's remarkable. Because they were well ensconced in Babylonia. They had grown up there, most of them. Many of them had never seen Judea, uh, or Judah, or Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, was in, it was rubble, but they'd never seen it. They never imagined that they could go back, unless, of course, they were believing the prophecy of Jeremiah that said that God would send them back. But here, 42,000 decided to go back. And, uh, Cyrus, being very, very gracious and wanting to promote uh, prayer for himself, all of those items that King Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, he said, take these back and rebuild the temple. And by the way, here's money to do it. Here's support to do it. So 42,000 gave back. And those who remained in Babylon uh, emptied their wallets to give money so that they would have plenty of money to build the temple. Now, the first priority, and we see this in chapter 3, the first priority was to reestablish public worship. The city was in ruins. The temple did not exist. There was no altar. The people were gone too. It was, just, it was, it was, it was a ruin. But the first thing that they did was they reestablished public worship. And that's in chapter 3. And then they laid the foundations for the temple. They began the rebuilding of the temple. And when they laid the foundations for the temple, they had a celebration. And I want you to see how the celebration went. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Everything sounds like it's going well, right? But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house, so these men had to be over 70 years old, they had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Why were they weeping? Because they had seen Solomon's temple in all its glory. 
and now they've made a foundation for this new house, and they were making the comparison in their own mind and thinking, this is it. Solomon's temple's gone, and we're going to rebuild this little thing. And they were raising up their voices, weeping, but the younger people were shouting for joy. It says the sound was heard far away. And that sets us up for what's next. Chapter 4, adversaries. It sounds like they made such a commotion that the people around them heard. And they came and said, what are you doing? And they said, we're rebuilding the temple. And they said, upon whose authority? And they challenged the authority to rebuild the temple. And that's what we have in chapter 4. We have the challenge to those who were rebuilding the temple. And they were able, they were able to get the rebuilding stopped for 16 years. So they started, and then they had to stop. And then, if we jump forward to chapter 5, we have the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, we have the books of Haggai and Zechariah. We have their prophecies. So now we know exactly where they fit into the history. They fit in here. Now, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, he was the high priest, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So they started rebuilding because the prophets said, you better get going. You've been working on your houses while the temple of God sits idle. Get going on the temple, and they did. Now I want you to notice something here. They were able, with the concerted effort, of three offices, or at least the remnant of three offices. Do you remember we've seen three offices in the Old Testament? What are those three offices? Prophet, priest, and king. And here we have Zerubbabel. He's not a king, but he is the descendant of David. He is the heir to the throne. So there we have the remnant of the king. We have Jeshua, who was the priest. And here we have the final element was that the prophets got involved. And once prophet, priest, and kings all joined together, they were able to move forward with the building of the temple. Now, this, um, this construction, it uh, provoked more opposition, but they kept going anyway. They sent a letter to the, the, the king of, uh, of Persia, King uh, Darius, and Darius looked in the archives, and he found the original letter of Cyrus. So he sent a letter back to the opponents and said, not only should you not stop them, but you should help them in any way you can to finish this project. And so, once again, God used the king of Persia to get the job done. Now let's look at chapter 6, verse 15. There's a curiosity. I don't know that this is planned in any way by those who divided the verses up, but there's a curiosity here. Ezra chapter 6.15 and Nehemiah chapter 6.15 both record the finishing of a construction. Verse 6.15 of Ezra, And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Now, there's something wonderful about this. They were able to rebuild the temple. It had been destroyed, and they rebuilt it and uh, just about 70 years after it had been destroyed. But there's something missing in the account. There's a glaring omission in the account of the rebuilding and the dedication of the temple. They dedicated the temple. 
But what's missing is what we saw back in Exodus chapter 40. And what's missing is what we saw in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Back in Exodus chapter 40, when they dedicated the tabernacle, do you remember what happened? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in Second Chronicles chapter 7, when they dedicated Solomon's temple, do you remember what happened? The same thing. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And here they dedicate the second temple, and what happened? Well, maybe they omitted to mention it, but it's not one of those things, if you're recording the history, that you would leave out. And so it looks like nothing apparently extraordinary happened. So now they have the first phase done. The temple is built. Second phase, Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meroyot, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abushua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. We wonder why all these names but it's to trace him all the way back to Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses. Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So now we have the second phase. We have the temple built, the temple dedicated. Now Ezra comes, and he was a priest, and he was a scribe of the Lord. And we learn what a scribe does. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This was something of a new... uh, The priest wasn't new, but the idea of the scribe was new. Why? We're getting towards the end of the Old Testament. We have most of the books of the Old Testament in place, and so it's not so much a question of adding more to the books of the Old Testament, but it's a question of studying those books and teaching those books to others. That's what the scribe did. And the scribe became the model for the Jewish preacher in the synagogue, and the scribe then became the model for the Christian preacher as Christian churches began being established around the Roman Empire. Because Paul would go, as you recall, and he would go where first? He would go to the synagogue, and they would get him, give him an opportunity to stand up and preach, and then they would run him out, usually. And then he would establish a church. And what did the Christian teachers do? The Christian teachers stood up, explained the Word of God. That's what preachers should do. By the way, let's look ahead just a minute to follow this idea, because we have an example of Ezra doing this. In Nehemiah, the next book, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, it says this, and it's talking about Ezra and other scribes, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's what the scribes did, then that's what the teachers in the synagogue did, and that's what Christian preachers continued, or at least that's what Christian preachers should continue to do. 
And this, you might want to underline, Nehemiah 8.8. This is your measuring stick. This is how you are to evaluate preachers. This is how you are to evaluate me. This is how you're to evaluate any preacher that you might hear. Does this preacher read from the Word of God clearly and explain it so that you can understand it? That's the job of the preacher. If the preacher is humorous, that's wonderful. If the preacher is good looking, that's great. If the preacher is, uh, has a magnetic personality, that's an added bonus. If the preacher is eloquent, well, good for him. But the job of the preacher is to do this. To study the Word of God, to read the Word of God, and to explain the Word of God to the people so that the people can understand it. And if the preacher does that, the preacher has done his job. And when people ask me about my work and sometimes thank me for my work, I say, can you imagine? This is my job. I get to do this for a living. I remember one of my favorite preachers, I don't know if he's still alive, but a Scottish man, and he was talking about the wonder of getting to do this for a living, and he said, fancy getting paid for this? (laughs) And that's how I feel. Fancy getting paid for this, to study the Word of God and to teach it to others. What a blessing for me. And may it be a blessing for the people as well that all preachers would do what Ezra has taught us to do, to read, to study, and to preach God's Word. Now, um, getting back to the story. Getting back to the story. um, Here we have Artaxerxes. He's sending Ezra. And then Ezra arrives, he's a teacher, and Ezra finds that not is all well in Zion. And in Ezra chapter 9, they go to him, and they say, Ezra, we have a problem. And that problem is not a new problem. Look at Ezra chapter 9. After these things, after Ezra got there, after there was a a, a sacrifice of offerings, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves, and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. This is tragic. Why is this tragic? Because this was one of the reasons that they were exiled in the first place. This is one of the reasons they were sent to to Babylon. To be, to be purified. And now this, this remnant, having been purified, is brought back into the land, and once again, the remnant, the holy remnant, is not holy. The holy remnant is once again mixing itself, not only with the peoples, but with the practices and with the beliefs of the people of the land. This is tragic because they had been able in a foreign land to maintain their identity, to maintain their faith as foreigners in Babylonia. And now they're back in their own land. And now they're, they're, they're mixing themselves. They're, they're giving away their identity. They're giving away their faith. They're diluting it. That which they worked so hard as foreigners to maintain, now back in their own land, they're throwing it away. And it seems that they've learned nothing from the exile. And let's see what Ezra does. Verse 3. 
As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying... And if we read his prayer, even though he was not personally guilty, when we read his prayer, he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for the iniquities have risen, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. Now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown us by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? Do you see the problem? He's saying, Lord, this is why you exiled us. This is why you punished us in the first place. And you've given us a a brief, renewed opportunity to live. A a possibility that we might survive. And what have we done? We've done the exact same things that our fathers did. Ezra, he didn't preach at this moment. He didn't rebuke. He simply prayed and he confessed. And the result was people gathered around him. And they prayed. And they confessed. And they committed themselves to repent of this sin. And they took a very, very drastic step. They took the drastic step of of divorcing all of these foreign wives. And they had had children to some of these wives. And this is... This is kind of curious because in Scripture it's, it's not in favor of divorce. But, but it seems that this was such a, a critical moment that the very life and existence of the people was in jeopardy. And so they had to take this very drastic step in order to protect the existence of the people. And so they did so and they separated themselves And they averted this disaster which would have destroyed the remnant from Judah. So what was Ezra's work? If, If Zerubbabel's work was to build the temple, Ezra's work was to build the people, the people's identity as a people of the Word of God. But there was one more building to do. And the building that was left to do was the city the city walls, because the city walls were still broken down. So we have the temple, we have the people that have repented and separated themselves once again, but now, now the city, because you can't in those days have a people without the protection of city walls. And so now we are back in Persia. And now we're back under the reign of Artaxerxes, a later king. 
And Nehemiah, now we're up to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. The cupbearer of the king, a, a position that protected the king's life. He was the, the final check on the food and the wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned before it got to the king. So a confidant, a, a responsible person. And Nehemiah heard that 70 years, okay, 70 years after the destruction of the temple, the temple is rebuilt. 70 years after the rebuilding of the temple, we come to Nehemiah. So 140 years after the destruction of the temple. And Nehemiah... Chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so what he did was, he sat down, and he wept, and he prayed, and he fasted. And then one day, he was serving the king, and the king noticed that he was sad. Now, we don't know why that was such a big deal, but apparently servants were not supposed to show their emotions before the king. And the king noticed the sadness of Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And he said, how can I not be sad when the city of my fathers is broken down? And because of his affection for Nehemiah, the king asked him, what do you want? And he said, send me back. Send me there so that I might promote the welfare of my people. And that's what happened. The king sent him back. And when he got back, he was surrounded by enemies on all sides. If you look at chapter 4 of Nehemiah, verses 7 and 8, it says, But when Sanballat... And Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. So we had Sanballat to the north, Tobiah to the east, the Arabs to the south, and the Ashdodites to the west. He was completely surrounded. But what he did when he got to Jerusalem was... The first thing he did is he reconnoitered the walls, he saw in what terrible condition they were, and he made wise plans, and he stirred up the people to begin to rebuild. And they began to rebuild, and just like when they began to rebuild the temple, opposition arose. When they began to build, rebuild the walls, opposition arose. And the rest of the story, the rest of the story that I hope someday we will get to study, is a story of faith and of courage, and of wisdom on the part of Nehemiah. And it's a a story overall of the faithfulness of God in restoring His people. Let me just give you a few examples of how Nehemiah combined faith with realism. Faith with action. If you look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it said... This is when the king asked him, what shall I do? When he saw that he was sad, verse 4, Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. 
So this is, this is Nehemiah's stance always. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I did something. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. You see the same thing. And they all plotted together to come and fight up against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. If you look at chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Do not be afraid of them. He's encouraging the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 20, it says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so they trusted in the Lord and they made sure they carried their sword. They trusted in the Lord and they spoke. They trusted in the Lord and they acted. He was a man of prayer and he was a man of action. And the result was, the result was that they finished the city walls in 52 days. 52 days. How long had they been broken down? 140 years. And now they finished the walls in 52 days. And this is the curiosity. Ezra chapter 6.15 records the finishing of the temple. Nehemiah chapter 6.15 records, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's the message of Nehemiah. Now, after the wall was finished, this is where Ezra and his companions get up and preach. And after he preached, an amazing response by the people. In chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, listen to what the people said in, in response to God's word. The heads of households promised to study and obey the word of God. By the way, may we look at these things that they said that they would do and, and be willing to do the same sort of things. The heads of households promised to study and obey the word of God. They celebrated the feast of booths. They fasted and confessed their sins. They promised to live according to God's word. The fathers promised not to allow their children to marry unbelievers. They promised to keep the Sabbath uh, Sabbath day even if they lost business because of it. They promised to make offerings for the expense of the temple. They promised to repopulate Jerusalem. What do we have here? It looks like we have a revival breaking out here. The people are promising to obey the Lord. And then they dedicated the walls, even as they had dedicated the temple, declaring not only the temple was holy, but the whole city was holy. So we have a holy people dedicated to the Lord in a holy city around a holy temple. And I would like to say that that's how the story ended. But Nehemiah had to go back to Persia for a while, and then he returned to Jerusalem. And he returned to Jerusalem to find that they had profaned the temple. They had not given offerings to keep it up. They had not kept the Sabbath, but allowed it to come become another business day. They had married foreigners and had children who could not even speak their own language. And that is how the Old Testament history ends. We could wish that it had ended in chapter 12, couldn't we? But that chapter 13 takes us back again. Right to where we were before Ezra 
wept and prayed, the people once again mixing themselves. And here we have the final word in Old Testament history. And it's a mixed note. It's a, it's a note of triumph. The Lord has, has reestablished His people. And it's a note of sorrow and defeat because the people have once again mixed themselves and sacrificed their faith in the Lord. So what do we have? We have under Zerubbabel, a temple that's been rebuilt, but apparently never filled with the glory of the Lord. Under Ezra, we have the people rebuilt around the word of the Lord, but their obedience to that word was short-lived. And under Nehemiah, we have the walls of the city rebuilt, but they discovered that the physical walls couldn't keep out the spiritual influence of the peoples around them, which they welcomed. So what do we have? We have this mixed note, this sad note, and then the Old Testament history says, the end. And that's how the story ends. But as we have seen throughout our review of Old Testament history, this note of incompleteness, this note of failure, if you will, is by design. Because the Old Testament was never meant to be the last story. It was never meant to be the last word. It keeps us hanging. And it leaves us hanging for 400 more years until the last chapter is written in the New Testament. And this incompleteness, this this failure, this mixed note at the end of the Old Testament pushes us forward and pushes us forward and pushes us forward asking, is this all? Or is there more to come? And the answer is yes, there's more to come. And what is that more to come? Uh, A manifestation of God's presence more glorious than, than Solomon's temple. More glorious than that second temple that they were working on. It's in fact God with us. God not dwelling in in stone and mortar or brick, but God dwelling as one of us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John tells us, and the Word became flesh and made His tabernacle among us. Do you want to see where God dwells now? Look to Jesus, because we have in Jesus God with us. Us. But it doesn't stop there. Because God does not only dwell in the temple that is Jesus. By the way, Jesus pointed this right away. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back up. And they didn't understand. They thought He was talking about the physical temple. But He was talking about what? He was talking about His body. And He was talking about the fact that they would destroy that temple. They would crucify Him. But three days later, that temple would be rebuilt because He would be raised from the dead. So He is the temple of God. But not only is He the temple of God, in our New Testament reading, we read that today. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do you not know that you all, you all are the temple of God? He says this, chapter 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And by the way, this is you plural, we don't have a good way to do this in English, but you all, you all are God's temple, and, and God's temple dwells in you all. He's talking about what? He's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. 
And we as Americans, if you ask American Christians, where does the Spirit dwell? We would say, in me. And that's true, because in chapter 6, he says something similar. He says, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But first he emphasizes, if we're talking about the building in which God dwells, what is that building? It is not a building, it is a people. God dwells in His people. We are the church of Jesus Christ, wherever we might be. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that temple, and this is the final idea, there are many directions we could go with this, but the final idea is this. That temple consists now of a new people, the people of God, and no longer is it a racial group. Now that dividing wall, you remember the walls they were building up? Those walls have been torn down in Jesus Christ. Now it is a a people, a temple made up of Jews and non-Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, it's page 1079, chapter 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you non-Jews, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the situation in Ezra. That's the situation in Nehemiah. When the nations tried to get close, they would stiff-arm them and say, stay away. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. So now what do we have? We have a manifestation of the temple that is far more glorious, far more glorious than even Solomon's temple. We have a temple that consists of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation on the planet. That's where God dwells today, among those who confess His name from all the nations. But there are parallels between the task of Ezra and the task of Nehemiah and our task today. We are among the nations. We don't live distinct from the nations in a separate place with walls around us. But we are still called to live distinct lives among the nations. So the call to us to be a distinct people is still there. We are to live according to the word of the Lord that He has declared to us so that we might show forth His glories in our lives and we are to be about the task of building the temple. That's what Paul says. He says, I'm a master builder. My job is to build the temple by taking this gospel message to everyone, to the nations and to our neighbors. And put these two together. You see the problem? In those days, they were not a distinct people, and so their message was diluted to the nations. And our calling today is that we might be that distinct people, not stiff-arming the nations, but going to the nations as that distinct people, so that we might have a message for the nations that is compelling 
and that they can see the reality of that message in our lives. That He has transformed us and that Christ offers them, even as He offers us, the very hope that they need. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this rebuilding, this revival that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. And we we are tempted to weep as well, and well we should weep as we come to the end of the story and find that after all You did for them, that they were diluting themselves once again. But far from being able to pass judgment on them, we recognize ourselves in them. And we pray, O God, that You would rescue us from our own tendencies to go astray. That we might live as distinct people, living our lives according to Your Word. So that the message we take to our neighbor and the message we take to our nations might not only come out of our mouths, but might be seen in our lives. And that they might see that what we have is what You give and what they need. For Your glory and for the extension of Your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.